Thousands of rally-goers gathered near the White House Wednesday morning. They gathered there from around the country at the urging of President Trump, who for weeks called for his supporters to come to Washington, D.C. to protest the Electoral College certification in Congress. In the weeks since the election, Trump has repeatedly falsely claimed that the election was stolen, rigged, fraudulent. He has spent weeks instigating his supporters, marking January 6th as the day for wild protest. And when January 6th finally arrived at the rally near the White House, the president riled up the crowd. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. He encouraged his supporters to try and give lawmakers the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. He demanded the results of the election be overturned and declared his duly elected successor, President-elect Joe Biden, an illegitimate president. Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, stood on stage and told the crowd that the election should be decided by a trial by combat. So, let's have trial by combat. Trump told the group to march to the Capitol and even said that he would join them. Let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I want to thank you all. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you all for being here. This is incredible. Thank you very much. But then he retreated into the White House for the rest of the day. His supporters, though, heeded the call and made their way toward the U.S. Capitol building. Meanwhile, inside the Capitol, in a joint session of Congress, lawmakers were in process of voting to certify Biden's win. Some Republican lawmakers planned to support Trump's false claims of election fraud and to contest the vote in several states. Debate in the chambers had begun over the electoral votes from Arizona, when the process was interrupted. Without objection, the House is going to go back into recess. Lawmakers, staff, and reporters were directed to find shelter or evacuate. A mob was wreaking havoc inside the building. Outside the building, the mob had toppled barricades in front of the Capitol and pushed past Capitol Police officers. Rioters ran up the building steps, banged on doors, and attempted to break in through windows. In other spots, they pushed their way inside. Once there, rioters roamed the halls and the House and Senate chambers, some carrying Confederate flags. They vandalized and rummaged through lawmakers' offices. They assaulted police and other public servants. One tried to replace the U.S. flag flying above the balcony with a Trump campaign flag. For hours, police struggled and failed to contain and disperse the mob. One rioter was shot under unclear circumstances and later died. The scene marked a truly distressing moment for American democracy. As the Post-White House bureau chief, Philip Rucker, wrote, Never before has American democracy been so strained. The seat of representative government been so imperiled, and a president been so at fault.
This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Yesterday's events were disturbing, and they happened in order to try and disrupt a congressional procedure that historically has been pretty straightforward and pretty uneventful. Congress had gathered to certify the electoral vote in favor of Biden. This episode here at the joint session, it is really a counting exercise. That's Sarah Binder, a professor of political science at George Washington University who studies Congress. The hard work is done in the states, that is obviously holding the elections, but the Electoral College meeting in the states over the course in December, in essence, to certify which slate of electors, the Trump slate or the Biden slate, earned the votes in that state. And then there's a process that sends those certificates to Washington. And the point of the joint session under the Constitution is the final step. Count them up. Open the envelopes. Do a count. And then by virtue of who has the majority, that's the actual final, final winner of the presidential election. So to be clear, this is an existing part of our electoral process. It happens after every presidential election. Yes, absolutely. And it's directed by the Constitution. And so there is no getting around it. And it's usually just a formal part of the process that's pretty uneventful. Yeah, we would think of it as normally sort of ceremonial, even. Very little drama. And occasionally there's been a protest. Sometimes it's done as quickly as 23 minutes. So can you explain to me under normal circumstances exactly how this process is supposed to work from sort of the moment the joint session starts to the final certification of the results? What does that process look like? So the presiding officer here under the Constitution is the vice president because he is also, in essence, the president of the Senate. The 12th Amendment in the Constitution sort of boils the day down like this. The vice president quote, shall in the presence of the House and Senate open all the certificates. And then the amendment says, and the vote shall then be counted. So we then have a law written in the late 19th century, the Electoral Count Act, that fleshes out the details. What does it mean, the vote shall then be counted? In essence, it looks like this. It's very simple. The vice president opens up the ballot envelopes from the states. He does them in alphabetical order. And we do each state at a time. So for each state, the president shares the paper with what we call the tellers, two members of the House, two members of the Senate who've been pre-selected by the leaders of those chambers, who then read the certificates from the states aloud. The vice president then scans the joint session. They're in the House chamber. House and Senate members present says, does any member of Congress wish to raise an objection? And then if nobody raises an objection, then essentially the tellers move on and the vice president then moves on to the next state. So let's talk about what does happen if there's an objection. We actually saw Vice President Pence starts going through the states for certification in alphabetical order. And by the time he got to Arizona, a Republican congressman objected. What happens at that point? When the vice president read his statement when he got to Arizona, he added a little language which was unusual from past years. He said, this certificate from Arizona. This certificate from Arizona. The parliamentarians advise me is the only certificate of vote that the state purports to be a return from the state. And is in essence from an official authority of the state. Now, normally the vice president just opens up the envelope and hands it to the tellers. But there was a rival set of electors basically put together by a rogue group of Arizona Republicans. 
And under the law, the vice president is supposed to hand over all the papers he has to the tellers. So there was a little bit of a move here to make sure that the only papers before the joint session were the official ones that were signed by the governor. Although we say under the law, the vice president doesn't really have discretion here. But there was a little move there that kind of narrowed the scope. It really focused everybody on the real certificates. So then when the vice president asked, are there any objections? Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Arizona that the teller has verified appears to be regular in form and authentic? The House member rose first, and the vice president has to basically confirm that the House member is sort of going through the checklist. Under the law, the Electoral Count Act, you need a House member, you need a Senate member, and it has to be in writing. So the House member confirmed that, yes, there was a House member, there's a Senate member, and it was in writing. It was read out loud. And then under the law, the vice president essentially tells the joint session, House and Senate, you will now withdraw to your respective chambers. You will then consider this objection. Under the law, there's a two-hour limit, so no filibusters allowed of this objection. And then in normal times would have been an up or down vote already on the objection. If the objection gets a majority in both chambers, in other words, if there's a majority that says, yeah, we object, that's a fraudulently given certificate, both a House majority and a Senate majority, then they would not count those votes. And we didn't see that vote Wednesday afternoon. The House will be in order. That's when precisely the U.S. Capitol was literally overrun with protesters who'd been at the pro-Trump assembly on the Mall. Now, in this case, there wasn't enough Republican support in the House or in the Senate to actually send results back to the states. But it's notable that in this process, should there be enough votes in some future case, we could potentially see a situation where election results would be sent back to the states. So what happens at that point? What do we do with those election results? In some ways, despite the drama and the disaster, it's not been a great test for what Congress would do, right, if there was a concerted unified party government and they were intent on ignoring the certification process in the states. But what would happen if there was a bicameral majorities for objecting to a state, those electoral votes would not be counted at the end of the day when they came back and reported the total number of votes for the Biden ticket and the total number of votes for the Trump ticket. Now, the law does not tell us what does it mean if you don't count the votes? Does that mean that instead of needing 270, do you now only need 259? Or do you keep the same 270? Like, does the denominator change? And there's one or two historical episodes where that's come into question, but it has never affected who won, who got to the majority. The question is, could there ever be a situation where they were objected to enough state electoral votes that you've changed the outcome of the election? And that would be a constitutional crisis. And that's what's striking to me, that we have this process built into our constitution that could potentially lead to the overturning or the changing of the people's will of the election results. So why does this exist within our Constitution? Why is this mechanism in there to allow that as a possibility? That's like the great ultimate question. Like, what were the framers thinking when they gave this last seemingly ceremonial 
role to the Congress. So one question is, who else could they have given it to? They didn't, I don't think they would have wanted to give it to the executive branch because the executive branch really, I mean, they, it's the vice president. He has a role as a senator, right? They don't want to give it to the president to decide whether or not he's going to be in office. I don't think they foresaw the role the courts would have. They hadn't really established the size of the Supreme Court or anything like that at that point. And it would make sense at the time that at least the House popularly elected assembly should be the one to make the final counting up of the judgment of the vote for the Electoral College. But they did not anticipate, I don't believe, the intensity of the partisanship. They didn't really have political parties back in 1789. And once you overlay the intensity of this as what people call this sort of tribal politics, my team's for it, so your team's against that, and you overlay it on this seemingly ceremonial process, that's the combustible constitutional crisis. And one could argue we are combusting in some regard right now. <laughs> That's what I was giving me pause as I was saying that. There is a constitutional crisis and it's going on, it's going on the six miles down the block. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape. And we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. The crisis at the Capitol did not come about by accident. In many ways, it was the natural culmination of what Trump and compliant Republicans had sowed by repeating baseless claims about election fraud. Trump often instigates his supporters to express their political views through physical demonstration and violence, and he's repeatedly declined to denounce the actions of white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and other extremists. This moment at the Capitol had been building for some time. It's not even just since November 3rd. I mean, since President Trump was a candidate back in 2015, we saw him give at times explicit and often tacit approval to the use of violence as a political tool. Philip Bump is a national correspondent at The Washington Post. We'd see people at his rallies who would use violence against protesters with his approval and praise, sometimes from the stage. Get him the hell out. Get him out. At one point in 2015, he pledged to pay any legal bills that were incurred if someone, you know, were to uh, attack a protester at a rally. So this has been an undercurrent to far-right politics well before Trump and certainly to Trump's time in politics since he took office. You know, people may remember, and uh, I believe it was 2017, he made a joke in front of police officers about uh, how they should feel free to physically assault people who are being placed under arrest. I mean, this has been a part of Trumpian politics since the outset. Obviously, since the election, what he's done is he has exacerbated tensions by claiming falsely and without any credible evidence that the election was somehow stolen from him. It obviously wasn't. He lost by a wide margin nationally, and he lost by sufficient margins in enough states to have lost the electoral vote. But because he has embarked on this petulant insistence that somehow he was stolen out of a victory, he has fostered this sense of frustration among his supporters that when combined with his overt calls over the course of the past week or two, and then explicitly on Wednesday morning from outside the White House to actually come to D.C. and march on the Capitol, all of this was inevitable. All of this was foreseen. I mean, I, I remember I wrote at the end of August that I was concerned 
that the embrace of false narratives by Trump supporters would lead to problems after the election. You know, he told them polls were lying to them. He told them that the mail-in ballots were subject to fraud. He told them all these reasons that in his mind were setting up an ability for him to claim victory even in the face of defeat. But really what was doing was setting expectations for his base that there was no way he could lose and that any loss would be unfair, invalid, and anti-democratic. And in doing so, by fostering that even months ahead of the election, it became clear that his supporters, some segment of his supporters, were not under any circumstance going to accept a defeat. And so we essentially saw them not accepting that defeat on Wednesday when this Trump incited mob overtook the Capitol. What exactly were they trying to do? What do we know about what these rioters were hoping to accomplish? It's sort of hard to say. It certainly is the case that some segment of the people who were there were simply trying to express their frustration. Obviously, the tagline for all of this has been stop this deal, the argument that Biden and Democrats are stealing the election, which again, and we cannot express this enough, is absolutely false and frankly ridiculous. But that was what was being said. They were there to stop this deal. Some of them were just sort of engaged in the moment and the enthusiasm of speaking up for Donald Trump and so on and so forth. And I don't know that everyone who entered the Capitol yesterday had the express intent of trying to overthrow the United States government or anything along those lines, but some did. Some frankly and clearly did. Some were expressly advocating that from outside the Capitol, that they stormed the Capitol at all, that that initial surge into the Capitol occurred indicates that there was an actual overt attempt to block the counting of electoral votes, which would have made Joe Biden president. That in of itself suggests that there was at least some portion of the crowd which was explicitly intent upon subverting the democratic process and overthrowing the government, if you will. You know, again, that doesn't mean everyone there was, but that some were and that some did so with the at least tacit approval of President Trump. And, you know, in the hours that ensued, the fairly explicit approval of Donald Trump is shocking. And leading into this vote earlier in the week, there was this serious infighting within the GOP over who was going to choose to publicly side with Trump or not, who was going to sign on to challenging the electoral results and who was not. What was motivating these lawmakers to support Trump's baseless claims and to take it so far as to challenge the electoral count? I think there are some Republican legislators who very sincerely and misguidedly believe the nonsense that Donald Trump has said about the election. You know, I mean, legislators like most Americans, don't spend all of their time parsing their media intake and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of them actually believe the garbage that's been spewed on Fox News and in conservative media and by the president. I, th I think they do. Mo Brooks of Alabama, I think he sincerely believes the nonsense that he was saying yesterday about the election. But there are a lot more, I think, uh, Republicans who see this as an opportunity. There is already some jockeying for who can appeal to Donald Trump's very fervent base of support. You know, I think people like Senators Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz see coddling Donald Trump's supporters and echoing his claims as being a way to potentially build their own political power bases. And I think that they understand that the claims being made are false and indefensible, essentially, but that they rise to their defense anyway because they recognize that it offers a political opportunity. After a chaotic day, voting resumed in the Capitol late Wednesday night. Let's get back to work. And many GOP senators changed course. Several Republican lawmakers had planned to dispute as many as six states' electoral votes. But in the end, senators only ended up disputing Arizona and Pennsylvania. Both challenges failed. 
There were certainly some senators who backtracked Kelly Loeffler, who had on Tuesday lost her bid to hold her seat in the Senate from Georgia after the the incident at the Capitol decided not to actually back the contest. And I cannot now in good conscience object to the certification of these electors. Even Josh Hawley sort of cynically stepped away from his claims about Pennsylvania. He raised an introduction about Pennsylvania and then refused to defend it, which is an odd decision at the very least. There were a lot of members of the House. I mean, you know, I think it's important to remember that regardless of a handful of senators having stepped away from their insistence that they would they would take this position, that there were more than 100 members of the House who nonetheless continued to do so. And while it certainly is better that senators said, hey, you know what, actually, maybe this isn't a great idea. However, it revealed their motivation as being political and not actually rooted in concern about election fraud, as had been stated, that so many didn't actually step away from it. So many people actually went forward with and engaged in this fantasy uh, that somehow they could obstruct Joe Biden's ascent to the presidency. I think that's more important. Yeah. So really political decisions, even in the face of this sort of horrifying moment for American politics, political decisions really seem to drive the day at the end of it all, which is is sort of alarming, I think, at this point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, again, we come down to this question of who was doing it for politics and who was doing it because they were deluded, right? And I think that most of the people who supported this effort to stop the electoral vote from being counted, I think most of them did for politics. Now, look, there's probably a middle ground. And the middle ground is people who sincerely think that voter fraud is a threat, which it isn't. You know, we can't say that enough. Yes, voter fraud occurs, but never to any significant extent, such as it would put for example, a national election at risk. I think there are people who actually think, hey, we need to do something about voter fraud and saw this as a way to elevate that concern and who may have been doing so in part because they've heard from so many of their constituents riled up by Fox News and riled up by President Trump that this is something to which they should pay attention. I think there are a lot of people too who are doing it cynically. That's sort of the spectrum. And I think a lot of people do fall in the middle of like, how do I represent the concerns of my constituents and concerns that I myself have? But that they chose to do so at that point in time was obviously politically useful in terms of appealing to Trump's base. And I think none of them were not aware of that. Ultimately, none of these political maneuvers obstructed Biden's ascent to the presidency. Congress finally certified President-elect Joe Biden's victory early Thursday morning. The announcement of the state of the vote by the president of the Senate shall be deemed a sufficient declaration of the person's elected president and Vice President of the United States. So then does all of this lead to a deeper fracturing of the Republican Party divided even further now among those who subscribe to Trumpism and those who don't? I think it's pretty apparent that what has happened in the Republican Party over the past decade, not just since Trump and not just over the past couple of months, is that there is this battle between reality and delusion. And I think that there's always been this tug of war between the establishment and the fringe, starting before even the Tea Party, starting with birtherism claims about Barack Obama. And I think that that is what we continue to see now. The the challenge is that over the past four years, the fringe has become massively more powerful by virtue of having one of its members, Donald Trump, be president of the United States and have that platform and have that voice, having things like QAnon go unchecked and unchallenged, fostered by social media, encouraged by President Trump at times, that the fringe is big and powerful and has a voice. I mean, consider what's happened to Fox News. Fox News has been a loyal foot soldier 
for President Trump, at least on the opinion side and often on the news side. But it found that it got outflanked on the right by One American News and by Newsmax, who are just completely unbeholden to reality in many ways. And it's cost Fox News an audience because there is a marketplace for the fringe, for the delusion. And as long as that exists and is tugging at the Republican Party, that tension is going to exist. And I don't know if it's so much a battle within the party itself as it is just an actual crisis within American politics and culture. But does the far right wing of the party find itself in a different position when you have Vice President Pence and Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, all of these people sort of saying enough is enough? Is it weakened at this point after the events of yesterday? I don't think the far right fringe of the Republican Party is weakened after yesterday because they never saw Mike Pence or Mitch McConnell as being allies. The only ally they really see in politics is Donald Trump at the end of the day. You know, if Donald Trump were to tomorrow turn on Donald Trump Jr., Donald Trump Jr. would be exiled from the far right of the Republican Party. Donald Trump is the marker for what constitutes someone who uh, aligns with Trumpism for fairly obvious reasons. When you have a political movement which is centered entirely on a personality, that personality determines who gets to be part of the movement. So, yeah, I don't think that there are a lot of people who are really fervent Trump supporters and say, oh, well, hmm, well, if Mike Pence says this, then maybe Donald Trump isn't the end all be all of American politics. It's just that's not how it works. That's not what his movement is based on. Uh, and that's not what he's intentionally fostered since 2015. You know, that is, I think, the reckoning that the Republican Party has to figure out over the course of the next several years. And I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't know how you continue to engage with the most fervent Trump supporters as Republicans and not as Trump supporters simply by virtue of where the their obvious and demonstrated priorities lie. And I think it's pretty clear from what we saw yesterday that people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley even intend to kind of carry that torch forward, at least, you know, hoping to grasp the far right wing of the party. And then ultimately, it seems potentially run for president in 2024, or at least be seen as a leader in the Republican Party. Is it is it clear that that's something they're banking on? Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are political opportunists on this. And as long as it seems like Trump supporters might be a viable base for a potential presidential run, they will try and appeal to that base in a way that is most likely to get that base to like them most, right? If, however, and the results in the Georgia runoff election suggest that this might be the case, if that base is only going to vote for Donald Trump and only going to be supportive of Donald Trump, which I think is possible, if not likely, then I think that they will very quickly downplay the extent to which they think it's important to reach out to the base. Now, if you look at what both Hawley and Cruz did, they tried to walk a line between appealing to the Donald Trump side of the argument and maintaining a defensibility that what they were doing was simply within the norms of what senators do. So Hawley, for example, his objection was never about fraud. It was about the constitutionality of a 2019 law passed by Republicans in Pennsylvania that amended how the state conducts its votes, right? That was his objection. That was the thing which he ostensibly was saying was problematic. But he used that as cover to rally up and appeal to Donald Trump's base of support in the far right that was standing outside the Capitol on Wednesday. Cruz did something similar. He said, because of these unprecedented allegations of fraud, we need to have a commission which studies the vote. He was not saying that there was fraud because there wasn't demonstrable fraud. He was instead saying these allegations necessitate yada, 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 so that he could both do it in a way that sounded senatorial and at the same time tell Trump supporters with a wink, gotcha, man, I'm going to do what I can to keep your guy in office. That was how they played it. 
if those voters become unimportant, they'll just slip back into the, well, I was just being a senator doing senate things, which is, you know, why they crafted their objections the way they did in the first place. Do we have a sense of whether Trump supporters or a significant portion of the 74 million people who voted for Trump support what we saw at the Capitol yesterday? We don't yet. What we do know is that most Republicans actually believe or state that they think the election was rigged and or stolen from President Trump. We often see in the immediate aftermath of an election similar frustrations from the losing side. And so that may fade over time. You know, it may be the case that over time, the sense that something untoward happened diminishes simply by virtue of the fact that nothing has actually been revealed to suggest that. It also may be the case that this lingers and that most Republicans continue to feel over the duration of President-elect Biden's tenure that he should not be there. That's very possible and it will certainly be continue to be fomented by President Trump at the very least and potentially his allies in conservative media for the next several years. So we don't know how many it is. I think it's safe to say there are millions of Americans who are at the very least sympathetic to the people who stormed the Capitol yesterday. And that is in and of itself enough to cause a lot of alarm. So on that note, my final question to you, Joe Biden's victory was finally certified very early Thursday morning. He'll get sworn in on January 20th. But what happens next in a broader sense? This feels really like a a painful moment in the American story. Is there anything that reporting can tell us about whether this is likely to be a moment of resiliency for our democracy or or something else? It's really hard to say what happens next. I think that there are a lot of political actors who are looking for a way to bridge the divide uh, that clearly exists within American politics. President-elect Biden is probably at the front of that pack saying that he wants to figure out a way to work through Republicans and, and heal the country. But the question is, when you have a movement which is predicated on the idea that the establishment is corrupt and sickened and is dedicated to the idea that Donald Trump is the only savior that exists within American politics, how do you reach out to those people? I mean, it's the exact same conundrum that the media faces when the media says, actually, these people are lying to you. And those people say, well, the people who are lying to us told us that you are lying to us and we believe them, right? What do you do with that? <laughs> I mean, the media doesn't know, right? And I don't think politicians know either. You know, when Mitch McConnell says, you are being lied to by Donald Trump, let's say he said that explicitly, you are being lied to by Donald Trump. Trump supporters would just say, ah, yeah, of course, because you hate Trump and you're part of the swamp. So, of course, you're going to say that, Right. This is the conundrum, and we don't know what the path forward is, just as we in the media don't know what the path forward is. I don't think people in politics do either. And I think that it's going to take a while to figure out what the answer is. I don't know. I wish I did. I think President-elect Joe Biden wishes he did. I think Mitch McConnell wishes he did. I don't think anyone does. Very early Thursday morning, shortly after Congress affirmed Biden's win, Trump issued a statement. He said... Even though I totally disagree with the outcome of the election and the facts bear me out, nevertheless, there will be an orderly transition on January 20th. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. This episode was produced by Arjun Singh and Bishop Sand with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. 
Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.